0: Here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if
1: we end up here. This is the drop zone. Good evening, Dylan DeChair. Good evening to all you drop zone fans. Zonies, as a drop zone fan recently called the fans and friends of this podcast. I am your captain, Sean Zock. Uh, The Wells Fargo Championship was a lot of fun to watch. Painful to play in for some of those players. Dylan, you enjoyed
0: watching all the action, didn't you? I really did. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about golfers that I remain interested in, kind of week in, week out, personal biases. I mean, short of Martin Traynor being in contention, Keegan Bradley being up there, Max Homa being up there, Rory McIlroy being up there. uh, I mean, this one kind of really had it all for me. So... Yeah, I was dialed in. This was uh, this is a uh, what could be an in between week. What has been a big week and sort of also just a regular PGA Tour week in the past, based on whether Tiger Woods is playing or not. Um, but yeah, the Wells Fargo's in that. It's in that zone where it's certainly not in fifth major talk. It's certainly not in you know invitational talk. But it's it's kind of at the the upper crust of the regular PGA Tour events. And uh, new golf course this year. I mean, look, actually kind of a bunch to talk about. But to answer your question, Sean, I had a nice time watching the golf tournament this weekend. What about you?
1: I really enjoyed it on Sunday because birdies and bogeys, right? Yeah. Keegan Bradley almost won. He made two double bogeys on Sunday. Made five birdies. Max Homa made five birdies. Damn near made it six. Uh, Rory McIlroy in contention. Matthew Fitzpatrick playing in horrible conditions, playing really well, like he always does.
0: So it was a good, fun watch. Sean, one of the reasons that I really liked watching this week is because they had some of that good Seattle weather. And Sean, one thing that makes me think of is our friends at Radmore Golf. That's a Seattle-based apparel startup. They make the most stylish, but also the most sustainable golf clothing. Um, It's cool. It's kind of, you know, it brings this kind of retro edge to modern golf apparel, Uh, You don't necessarily need to wear a hardcore collar if you're wearing Radmore. They've got some hoodies available, some crew necks. Uh, Honestly, excellent socks. I've been wearing a lot of Radmore socks this week. I don't even know if you have Radmore socks yet, Sean. Yeah, because you've been keeping them from me. Yeah, I've been gatekeeping this Radmore sock relationship. So we've got to work on that. Uh, There's a couple drop zone items still available. But I mean, the way they're going off the site, you're going to need a reprint. Anyway. For the best golf apparel in the game, head to RadmoreGolf.com. That's R-A-D-M-O-R, golf.com, and use the code DROPZONE for a preposterous 25% off, Sean. Yeah, it is preposterous. They're like giving it away. And giving it away. <laughs> um, Sean, well, let's start with the winner this week. Let's start with Mr. Max Homa, America's podcast guest. What do you think of our four-time PGA Tour winner?
1: I think he's making winning look normal, which is a really hard thing for PGA Tour players to do. Like, Rory McIlroy doesn't really make it look that normal anymore. Uh, but Max Homa has now done it three times, I believe, in the last, like, 18 months mm-hmm. on the PGA yep. Tour. He's now, like, a, a true threat. I think when you look at a leaderboard, you, you get the top ten names, whatever, that CBS will have up on the on the TV screen, and you're like, okay, well... I guess we have to pay attention to Rory and like Matthew Fitzpatrick's never won out here. So like, is he really going to run up and win? Like Cameron Young, is he going to run up and win? And you look and you see Max Homa in those names, among those names. And you're like, well, crap. Yeah, he's a killer. Like mm-hmm. he, he he's going to go out and win tournaments. As you tweeted out, yeah. the guy wins most of the time he's in contention. So he's made it a bit normalized, which is saying a lot because there's really only like 15 dudes who kind of have normalized winning in terms of pro golfers right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there because we talk a lot inevitably, you know, if you're covering golf, you're going to talk about guys that you feel like should be winning more often than they're winning. Like that's just kind of how it goes because every week there's 150 dudes, there's one winner, everyone else to some extent is a little bit disappointed. Max Homa doesn't really do that. He doesn't really do the, you know, oh, man, he finished second this week, finished third this week. A little bit disappointing. No. Across the Corn Fairy Tour and the PGA Tour, Max Homa has eight top fives and six wins. So that means he's finished <laughs> third once. He's finished fifth once. He's never finished second, never finished fourth. Not a big podium guy. Just winning. Good. Just winning, Sean. I mean, so... When you think about guys that are like that, you think about you know Martin Trainer. Max Homa is, I guess, for now, a rich man's Martin Trainer. Not only in the sense that he's friendly with the drop zone, but in the sense that when he seems to be in the mix, he gets it done. And what do we make of that? Like, is that does that is that a consistent thing? Is that a, does that mean that Max Homa is going to be in contention more and you know has some second places in his future? Does it mean this is unsustainable? I mean, does it just mean like he can? send this thing to another level when he gets in the mix?
1: No, I mean, I think it just, it speaks to progression. Uh, He spoke about it in his post round press, uh, his interview with Amanda Renner. It's like he talked about how the first time he won here, 2019, uh, the first time he won the Wells Fargo, He was a little bit like worried about showing up to the first tee too early on Sunday. His caddy kind of talked him into not being that close to the tee so he doesn't have to hear the roar of another player. He didn't worry about it today. Like when he won for the first time at the Genesis Invitational, right? He, he talked about winning in front of his fans, winning his home event for the first time, the event he grew up watching. And he got so emotional when he wins the Fortnite Championship. He, he, got, he talked about being emotional again. And every time he's won, he's been emotional. But now he wasn't that emotional. He was given all the opportunity to be emotional about that victory today, right? He and his wife just announced 12 days ago that they have a child on the way. Today is Mother's Day. He's thinking about recently what his wife will look like as a mother But he has all these reasons to be emotional or to get really wrapped up in a win in the ways that he has in the past. He's talked about it eloquently, but he doesn't need to because this is just the next step in his progression. He doesn't get as nervous on the first tee when he's in contention anymore. He doesn't get as nervous on the 18th tee. He hits the fairway when Keegan Bradley blows it into the bunker. Like This just feels like the natural progression of a mature dude who takes his golf extremely seriously and is kind of probably hitting his peak, playing the best golf of his life.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, today seemed less, uh, he, didn't, he didn't seem surprised today. He seemed grateful. He seemed happy. He's, he talked, you know, immediately afterwards about basically life's pretty good right now. You know, he's got a child on the way. He's on a winning tear. He's looking like a, I mean, we can talk about this in a little bit, but uh, a likely contender to be on like the U.S. President's Cup team, make his first mm-hmm. first U.S. team, which is a, Giant step for any yeah, American golfer. Um, so this felt, in some ways, like his official arrival. Like it, it, this was not a, it wasn't a surprise or a you know a big first like his initial Wells Fargo victory in 2019. It wasn't, you know, the emotional moment that came with winning at Riv, his hometown tournament. Like I mean, like you said, it, it's this is his announcement effectively that like i'm here to stay i'm gonna keep winning um so like get to know max homa if you don't already if you're not one of the twitter simps of max homa then it's time can he win a major championship is he there yeah i mean i really think he can because he he has the game that stands up to tough conditions he seems to really enjoy it um i think he works on his mindset as much as anyone on tour um So when things get tough, he seems to rise to the occasion. I mean, I talked to him earlier this year about uh, what tournaments he plays, and he and Joe said that they've kind of looked at the schedule. They've, you know, done some research on how he's played in the past, how he's fared in the past, and the events where the winning score is lower, essentially closer to par, he plays better in those events. Um, He's also, I mean, he's picked up a ton of distance, Yep. Like his ball speed is in the into the one eighties. I mean, this week distance got a little bit thrown out the window, but uh, yeah, he's got the speed. He's got the game to play anywhere. Um, He's one of those guys. When you look at his statistical profile, he's pretty solid all the way around, but I I mean, he's also a guy that just, he just seems like he's wins. I mean, you know, whether he can keep that up, we'll see. I mean, the stats people hate that sort of analysis, but like, it kind of speaks to it speaks for itself
1: the stats people also hate his major championship finishes so yeah that's why i asked you the question like you you look at the number of events he's played in in majors it is seven missed cuts out of uh i think 10 events so i think you're right that's crazy i did not know it was that week I think, you're, I think his game does travel extremely well in terms of courses like Southern Hills that will be surely baked out and heavy rough like you saw this week and tough, and it's a course that not many people know well, which is the same thing you could say for this course this week. that He is playing the best golf of his life. He does have essentially zero weaknesses. I just wonder if, like, it just it feels like at times you need some firepower, and it's hard to say that he has firepower, and I, 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 like I said, you don't want to undercut him and he's won another big pga tour event his fourth <laughs> win he's made it normal as we've said it just feels like that that might be a step that's like too big i hope i'm wrong because i really like the idea of him winning a major <laughs> i think everybody yeah.
0: does i mean i think the one of the reasons that he that he hasn't played as well in some of these big events it, if he does have an achilles heel it's definitely his play around the greens he's not a great chipper um that's typically a requirement to win at Augusta. If you're not going to, or at least, you know, to contend at Augusta, you're most often going to be pretty nifty around the greens. Um, He definitely just hits a lot of greens, hits, you know, quite a few fairways hits it. Yeah. Like you said, no real holes in his game. If there was one, it's probably that short game around the greens. Um, But I mean, yeah, of course he could win a major. I mean, he, I wonder with some of these guys that are, um I guess more more emotionally invested and and you know we're more aware of the way that they approach professional golf. Um I always wonder if they if they rev themselves up too much for events that they know matter. Like if they if they inwardly and outwardly care so much that you know they they ramp up the pressure in those events. I mean, I we've heard Rory McIlroy like talk about this struggle of getting out to starts and major championships for forever. And uh, I think that there are some similarities to the way that he and Max Homa approach the game. They're both cerebral, thoughtful guys that like when they're in the zone seem to go to a different place, like seem to, to, you know, black out and play incredible golf when they're in the right mindset. Um, But yeah, obviously he's had a tough time in some majors, but yeah, again, as you said, kind of unfair to focus on that when he's coming off a a giant victory here
1: I think you distinctly do not want to say no he can't win and that's what happens when you win four times you you cannot say no he cannot win a major championship of course
0: you can't you know like uh, yeah (laughs) who like who who's a great player that you can say man that guy's never gonna win a major yeah I'm just I'm just you you
1: got no choice at some for the odds makers to look at, the, at the seven yeah. miscuts cuts out of 10, 10 major tries. So, um, I think, I think all players care too much about majors. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily Max Helma and Rory McElroy. I think it's because they, they tell us about it. Yeah. They tell us that they care too much. They have a microphone in front of them, either in Rory's case, because of all the press conferences or in Max's case, because he was on a podcast for a year, you know, talking about it all the time um I think all players rev themselves up a little bit too much at majors um and the person who has gotten that under the under control the most is Kepka. Brooks Mm -hmm. is the one who like somehow mastered it and yet he still tells you that nothing matters but the majors so you would kind of think that he's still revving himself up so much you know to compete compete when he's injured and stuff like that so I don't know if there's much there that I necessarily agree with. <laughs> I, th- I think Kevin Nogg gets himself like outwardly hyped up for majors too. Now uh, he just doesn't talk about it quite as much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, all right. Here's, I guess here's the difference is like, yeah, the key that we've seen over the years to winning majors is acknowledging that you care about them and treating them differently. But then like, you know, rising to the occasion, there's like a, there's an element of like, screw you. like, I'm the best golfer in the world. I mean, obviously Tiger was the original guy that said, look, majors are the only thing that matters. Um, and then he would just go win them. Like that, that was, he was laser focused on them. He was the ultimate over preparer. Um, and Kepka was the same way. So we've seen Rory kind of oscillate between different approaches. And, uh, and, you know, I guess that's, that's kind of what I had in mind is like guys that have underperformed based on what we expect from them in major championships are still trying to like fine tune that approach. And, and and if they could channel some sort of Brooks Kepka alpha mentality, like pedal to the metal thing, they probably would.
1: I was actually impressed at what we saw from Homa today on the last hole. He's got 80 feet for his birdie putt. He's got a one shot mm-hmm. lead, which is yes. essentially, essentially a two shot, essentially a two shot lead, Right. Because Keegan Bradley's, you know, chipping from the fairway and he comes up short. Keegan's gonna make four at best. Max Homa just needs to make four to win. He has, he has his putter in his hand. And he almost makes the first putt, and the ball rolls like a foot past the hole. And you see him kind of like let out this a bit of a scream, like he was like, yeah. upset that it he, didn't go in. Cursed th- loudly. He thought he, yeah, he, he thought he had the perfect putt, and he damn near had hit the perfect putt. Uh, And then when he goes on to like actually hit the game or the tournament winning putt, he yells out again, like, come on, that's, that's not something we had seen from him yet. Right. I think that that was him saying, like, like you said, going to a major championship and saying, I'm the best golfer. I think that was Max Homa saying, I'm the best golfer in this two man finish here. Like I'm better than Keegan Bradley. I'm the best golfer this week too. And I'm going to start screaming about it. That was a different side of him, I think, than we've seen, and maybe that might be part of it too. Like he might be starting to think, like, okay, I am one of the twelve best Americans. I'm gonna be on that Presidents Cup team. I am a contender in a major, even if I haven't shown it to this point. There might have been something in that, at least from from where I'm sitting.
0: Yeah. No, and I, he's definitely has talked about that in the past. Like, it, I think when he maybe when he won at the Genesis, but I think he he made a conscious choice to go from like the Relatable you know ah shucks Twitter guy, yeah, funny average Joe guy, to acknowledging like I'm one of the most talented golfers in the world, like I've worked my ass off to be here, I've gone through the highs and lows of the whole thing, like I'm now ascendant, so then he has this ability to to flip that switch to be like everyone's friend. You know, there's a reason that Twitter looks different when Max Homa is contending because everyone sort of has a personal connection and a nice thing to say about him. You know, like, yeah, I think it, mm-hmm. he, I don't want to say he gives the illusion, but he, he is friendly with enough people in the golf world that everyone feels as though they're friends with him, which is, ai I don't yeah. think that's fake. I think that that's probably a credit to him. Um, I wish that there was like a real, zag that we could do here and be like, yeah, you guys know, don't know the real Max Homa, I'll give you something dark, but no, he's, he's, he's a normal, friendly, thoughtful, self-aware guy. I mean, you, he, his first reference of the post round interview was making a, a joke about perspective that probably went over the head of, you know, most of the viewers. Um, but the, his ability to then turn into a closer, it's unbelievable. It's like, it's Yeah. yeah we we've already covered it enough but i'm extremely impressed with it and because cool anomalies are really interesting in sports i hope it continues yeah
1: he might have had like a little imposter syndrome early in his career like wins for the first time the first person on the range yeah. i think that or that stood out to him the next tournament tiger woods says hey congrats on winning like that <laughs> that like shook him yeah. up a little bit he's talked about He might have still had a little imposter syndrome in the immediate year that followed, but he can't have it
0: anymore. I don't think he does. Um, Well, I think you do have to make a conscious choice of going from being like like self-deprecating as a professional athlete is like fun and cool and relatable. But then to actually perform when it's like you versus Keegan Bradley down the stretch on a difficult golf course, you need to tap into something else. And he clearly did that. You want to talk about Keegan? If you could have chosen
1: who would win today, Max Homa or Keegan Bradley, who would you have chosen?
0: Oh man, here's what's funny. I don't, I don't actually know Keegan Bradley at all. You know, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I mean, for backstory for 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 the Zonies that may not be caught up in all this, like, uh, I played a lot of golf in college with Keegan Bradley's uncle, Uncle John, just a legend. I played of a man. golf
1: with his aunt.
0: See. Pat. There you go. Yeah, when I was in college, I went down to the Deutsche Bank wearing uh, wearing a Keegan's Clan button. We walked around <laughs> with Pat Bradley, Uncle John, uh, Uncle Chris. You know, I mean, just a just a bunch of Bostonian, New England legends. Like I grew up, I grew up 400 yards from Vermo- Vermont. Vermont Keegan is the you know best golfer that's ever going to come out of Vermont. So. Like, it runs pretty deep here. But do I know Keegan? No, I've talked to him a few times. That's it. Like, we've never really, like, gone deep on this connection. I've put out the feelers of, like, yeah, we got to have you in the drop zone. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, this is still mostly just, like, admiration from afar. And you know what? People don't like him. People don't like Keegan Bradley. You look at the, you know, that he's twitchy, takes too long. Like, and I've had enough of it. This erasure of Keegan Bradley's talent. He's an American hero. He he's an absolute gamer. Like no one grinds harder than Keegan Bradley. I have a real appreciation for him. I feel like the cool kids of like new golf media are anti-Keegan Bradley, and I think it's bullshit.
1: I'm gonna give you some straightforward reasons why he could be disliked. I don't dislike him, <clears throat> but I'll tell you why he could be disliked. Uh, I'm w- I'm willing to listen. He won with. Uh, An anchored putter, and I know that that's what the rules allowed at the time. But the rules don't allow it anymore, and he has not contended in a major since. It makes that win feel a little, a little fraudulent. That's it, just a little, just a little.
0: Um, (laughs) he, Webb Simpson would like a word. You know what?
1: Webb Simpson backed it up by winning the Players a couple years ago.
0: Actually, I guess I should say, I guess I should say. The people you just mentioned would like a word with Webb Simpson. <laughs>
1: um, now he his pre-shot routine, I would say, is extremely uh, unlikable. He steps in behind the ball, steps back, <laughs> steps in behind the ball, steps back. There's a great shot today uh, of the drone, I think it's a drone, maybe a blimp hovering over her head of Keegan, way up above. and it's kind of like zooming in down on him. And he's like going back and forth and back and forth, and then it cuts to a, a ground level camera. He's going back and forth, and he goes and he kind of moves something out of the way of his golf ball, and then he goes back and forth one more time. Then he gets over the ball, spins the club a couple of times, and then finally he starts to take a swing. That I think rather unlikable. Um, I would say he, he if he was on a winning Ryder Cup team at Medina, I bet you he's way more likable, which is unfortunate. Mm but one of his crowning achievements in the game is being a buzzsaw with Phil Mickelson that week on a team that blew it. And I bet if he was on a Ryder Cup team that won, I bet he'd be a lot more likable. Now, you could say, you can poke holes through all these reasons, but when they add up and he doesn't really do anything and other the other like viral moment of his life is kind of like barking back at the ultimate Mr. Cool,
0: Miguel Angel Amenta. Yeah. Miguel, I thought you were going to say the fact that he didn't never unpacked his bag from Medina, uh, right? Hopefully, never took his yeah. gear out of the bag. Hopefully, at this point, I don't know if we want an update on that story or not. Yeah,
1: so he's done a number of things that like bordered on could be loved for, but I think trend in the more more hated for, and it all adds up to people disliking
0: him. I think that the one thing that turns people off about him is really. Is really a strength. You know, when you're in a job interview, they say, you know, what's your biggest weakness? You say, Well, you know, I care too much. I try too hard. That's Keegan Bradley to me. You know, he's locked in. He's trying to, you know, he the aim point thing, I'm sure he knows it looks ridiculous. Is he's aim pointing a three foot putt for like 20 seconds. But you know, but he can't, he wants it so bad that he can't not do that either. And he actually putted great this week. I mean, if he putts well, he's going to be in the mix because he hits the ball as well as just about anyone on tour. But, man, you start to wonder down the stretch if that's sort of when short game weaknesses get exposed. Or or I guess when your weaknesses get exposed is probably ultimately under pressure. He did miss a few short putts on the back nine. Um, He has to know that this...
1: This was his week. We talk about it a lot of the time where tour pros make 90% of their earnings and 10% of their yeah. weeks. You can say the same for winning You know, X% percent of your victories or for, per times you're in contention. This is his week. He is the 151st ranked putter this year, strokes gained putting. 151st, that's below average, that's very below average. He's not a good putter. He finished this week number one in the field. He has <laughs> to know... He has to know. He, he has to have said to his caddy, to people intimately in the past, if I am the best putter that week, I'm going to win. Why? Oh, yeah. Because last, last year... He said he
0: just needs to be an average putter <laughs> to contend. Yeah, that's, that's been last, something he said multiple times.
1: Last year, he finished sixth in strokes gained tee to green. Like that's, <laughs> a, that's, that's alongside the best players on the planet. So T- Keegan Bradley... One of the best players without a putter in his hand. One of the most average players when he's putting. And so he has to know that this is a week that he let go. Unfortunately, uh, you know, at some point later this year, he will say, T2 finished Wells Fargo. That got me into the U.S. Open. That pushed me into the top 60 in the world. It did all these really good things for me. But right now, he's kicking himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably a good place to finish for for Keegan. 44th in the world after this T2 that will get him into Brookline uh, because there's a a cutoff in a couple weeks that will chop it down to the top 60. Um, So that's pretty great for him in front of a New England home crowd. Sean, what do you think about Rory McIlroy's week? Uh, You were actually unusually optimistic when we were texting earlier about this. Yeah,
1: dude. I think (laughs) Rory feels like a different golfer, and I might be seeing things that aren't existing right now but I'm I'm just if anyone has listened to this podcast I have not been that enamored with the guy over the last few years because he wins like one tournament a year he bombs his way as far as he can go but he can't hit a wedge tight and it leads to a lot of like t8 finishes back to our top 10 finishes but this just it kind of feels different like he made the cut I believe on the number and then he grinded out a really really good round on Saturday in brutal conditions when it felt like not many people were grinding out good rounds. Only the leaders were playing great golf on Saturday. And one of those guys was Rory McIlroy. Now on Sunday, he kind of faded with a little bit, I don't know, not a great putter on Sunday, but the guy still hung up there on the leaderboard during an event where he kind of had his C game for most of it. And that just, it feels like it's better than Rory's been. And his wedge game was a lot better this week. And I look back to his most previous played tournament being Augusta and it feels a little bit different. It feels like the shots he's playing are somewhat different. You know, there was there was still some firmness in those greens and he had to actually move the ball on the greens this week. I like what I'm seeing from the guy. I've hated on him a lot on this podcast. He's, he's the number two favorite right now in terms of uh, Southern Hills behind John Rahm. You know, he's got as good of odds as... Scotty Scheffler, who's won four times this year, so it all looks good in Rory's camp. Hopefully, he doesn't make me dislike him again by like another like backdoor top ten finish at Southern Hills.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's like funny. Rory's he sort up. of he sort of bristled at the idea earlier this week that he wins like in soft conditions. You know, he kind of said, "Oh, I've won thirty times around the world, or whatever it is. I think I've won in a bunch of different types of conditions." But certainly, the fact that this was a you know, pretty big, soft golf course. Had a lot of people calling Rory's number. Um, he turned into the overwhelming favorite. He played great. Yeah, it was a little a little disappointing down the stretch on Sunday. I think he got off to a pretty good start and didn't really, like, put that final charge into the leaders. Um, he was at four under for a while. He got to five under. He had some good looks to get to six under. Uh, ended up bogeying 18 to finish solo fifth. But... Yeah. I mean, it was good when it's this soft. I think sometimes you're going to see Rory spinning the ball from, from good looking spots to bad looking spots pretty quickly. Um, But yeah, I mean, he drove it awesome, drove it really well on, uh, on Saturday and Sunday, Um, hit a bunch of fairways, obviously he was, you know, hitting the ball very far also. I think you just mentioned where he sits in terms of Southern Hills. Like, who should be the favorite at the PGA championship Southern Hills is a course that, you know, we've seen the PGA championship in recent years, favor bombers, every golf course favors bombers, but like, it's not as clear cut as it is. Some years, John Rahm has made his statement. Scotty Scheffler obviously has done only good things in 2022. Like, where do you see the world order heading to the PGA?
1: It's Rahm one and Scheffler one, a or one B, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It's Rom and Scheffler. That's it. That's it. These are the guys that are winning in the run up to this event. These are the guys that are winning, have won ar- across their career on different golf courses. Scheffler's done it on four wildly different courses in the last three months alone. Rom's done it his entire career all across the world. It's those two. I don't think anyone else is there. I
0: love that. I love that. It's nice and neat when you put it like that. I mean. The only problem is, you know, and if you, if you ask the uh, smart guys in the desert, they would say that actually there's a whole clump of guys right on their heels. They'd say there's Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, Colin Morikawa, maybe Victor Hovland, maybe Brooks Koepka. Um, You know, eventually you get down to Will Zalatoris, Xander Shoffley, Jordan Spieth has to be in there somewhere. But in your mind, there's two clear best golfers in the world right now.
1: One A, one B, and like number four, like like I think there's like a list that goes like these two up top, yada yada yada. Then number four, Cameron Smith. Like Cam Smith is the next guy. Interesting.
0: It, though. So th- there is no number three. Is that all you're saying?
1: And there's there's no number two.
0: There's no number three. There's one A, one B and four. Two guys are in a three-way tie for first. I like that. Yep. Sean, I do just want to take a second to shout out our friends at global golf because Sean global golf has one letter on its mind right now. And that letter is you global golf's various services are you try you trade in and you select and they're all about getting people into the right golf clubs for them. You try is about you trying brand new gear for two weeks. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't love it, you send it back. You trade in allows you to trade in previously owned gear for credit towards the newest and best. We love that. And then finally, You Select is all about personalized recommendations from golf pros to help you select the best gear for your game. So you try, you you trade in, you select. It's all about you, the golfer at Global Golf. Check it out at globalgolf.com. Um, Sean, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about Sergio? You want to talk about the existential threat to the PGA Tour?
1: You know, I think that's the same exact thing, Dylan. Boom! I was hoping you'd say that. <sighs> Sergio Garcia is something we have to discuss because I think it was uh, misconstrued, maybe misperceived, uh, maybe accurately perceived. But what he did on Thursday was absolutely hilarious to me. When you break (laughs) down what happened, what had to happen, what didn't have to happen, and what ultimately ended up happening, was Sergio Garcia innocent (laughs) in this entire thing. Right. Being told that he was wrong while he was right, and outing himself for taking on the Live Golf Invitational series soon, he he blew his. If you didn't see this, holy cow! I'm happy you're listening to our podcast and uh, have
0: your head in, <laughs> in the weeds. The rest, of I know. Of the, if this is week. your one connection to <laughs> to you know the media world, uh, then good on you. Yes, but basically
1: Sergio hooks his drive during the first round on the 10th hole left. It goes across a creek. So in order to find his golf ball, which he's told he's been told was across the creek, he had to find a way to cross the creek. He had to stomp on a bunch of rocks. He paused, and he pointed out that there was a snake <laughs> diving into the water. He crosses the creek. He walks through the knee-high grass. He thinks he finds out where his ball is, and in his mind starts the mental clock. But... According to a PGA tour a rules official who happened to be on that hole. They don't have them on every hole. A rules official was on that hole with that group. That person started the clock probably a minute, maybe two minutes too soon. Sergio I think about two minutes too soon. Yeah. Okay. Eventually finds his golf ball. He's all excited as anyone would be who thought that they had lost a golf ball. He reaches out to Gary Woodland and his group. Oh, I found it. He yells up to his caddy. Come on up here. I've found it. He actually even says like, stop the clock. (laughs) I think I've found it. And by the time that he realizes it's his golf ball, the rules official says, look, buddy, it's been four and a half minutes. You only get three minutes. You have to go back to the tee or you have to take a drop on the other side of the hazard. Sergio, predictably, doesn't agree. And you know what? He was right. He was right about it. He deserved to have a little bit more time than he was given. But in that fit of all the people on the PGA Tour who you think might have a fit at a rules official, Sergio Garcia has to be in the top three. He has to be. He has a fiery attitude. It has, I guess, helped him sometimes. It has definitely hurt him at others. And he let it all out. He said, this is bullshit. This is absolute bullshit. I can't wait to get off this tour. I believe he said, I can't wait to leave this tour. And Mm -hmm. uh, he said, only a couple more weeks that I have to deal with you. He said all these things at the rules official. And you know what, Dylan? We would not have heard a peep of it Unless there was PGA Tour Live, unless we had cameras on all these holes, on all these groups, and Sergio was perceived to be in one of the featured groups, such that ESPN Plus had this thing playing out live with multiple cameras on Sergio, hearing every single word he said, a very attentive boom mic operator. Without all this, we get zero Sergio content. And I'm just so thankful that we have PGA
0: Tour Live, and it costs like $6 a month. Three little details on this, Sean. The first one is that it was really interesting the way his exchange with the rules official ended because I think there was a little bit of a uh, miscommunication there. Like I think that the rules official, if you listen back closely, and I know nuance was, you know died like fifteen years ago, but some people might find this interesting. The rules official basically said, like, well, look, if you're if you're telling me that you weren't looking in the area, then that's a different story. And I think what he was trying to do there is give Sergio an out to be like, no, look, I was not in the area. That's exactly right. Like I had not started looking yet. Um, then, you know, Sergio probably would have won that argument. Instead, I don't think Sergio maybe couldn't quite hear him or, you know, just like I didn't, didn't understand what he was turned saying. away. Yeah. So he said. So, so you're saying it took too long, and you know, went back. Ultimately, made par. Probably the same score he's going to make, regardless. Um, The second thing is just like it's just so interesting where guys go when they get into like just a rage, just when they start seeing red on the golf course. And like, no judgment to to people to get mad on the golf course. Like, you know, we all turn into some usually worst version of ourselves when bad things happen on the course, but it's like, you know, you see Tyrrell Hatton, he reacts one way you see like guys just react in different ways. And the way that Sergio reacted showed off this kind of victimhood that I think has made him unpopular with a certain segment of the PGA tour fan base for quite a while. Um, And that's not to say that Sergio doesn't have a lot of great engaging things about his personality. It's not to say he doesn't do good things, but like this specific way that he reacts to bad things happening to him or, you know, I mean, he hit a horrible tee shot. Like this thing was off the planet. (laughs) Did he get a bad ruling? Yes. It seems like he did. On the other hand, he got pretty lucky that ESPN plus cameras told him exactly where the ball was or else he probably wouldn't have found it like wandering through the long grass. So yeah, there was good luck. There was bad luck. He eventually made par. But the, it, it was just so strange that where he went in that moment was to say, like, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Presumably the same rules are going to be in place on the live tour. Uh, presumably... This is not
1: strange to me where he went. You think it's strange that ter- well, Sergio maybe said re- what I guess was top re- of I, mind? I guess just
0: revealing, like revealing that that's... Like, it's just such a it's a... It's a really, really revealing place to go in that moment because and the craziest thing sean sergio got kicked out of us out of the saudi international a few years ago for uh i mean more or less for damaging the greens because he thought they were bad when he was in saudi arabia in a city that essentially didn't even exist yet playing a brand new golf course in a brand new tournament this was a I mean, he was surprised that the greens were in bad condition and uh, went crazy on them, you know, used his putter, I think, to take a bunch of chunks out of the greens as it was reported at the time. So he is he's not in a good place when he gets upset on the golf course. He's not unique in that. But the way that he reacts in those moments is kind of unique.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, it's top of mind. I think when people say things instinctively, when they are surprised, as you said, in a fit of rage, they just say what is top of mind. And I think for Sergio, a man who's quote unquote, ready to leave the PGA tour in a couple of weeks, that has to be on top of his mind. He probably doesn't love how some rulings have been handed down or how the PGA tour operates. I think anyone who's taking live golf seriously has to have a bunch of A bunch of problems with how the pga tour operates like that is at the core of what i think is going on with anyone leaving the pga tour so this didn't surprise me what was surprising is that he did it to himself like that was what was so amazing to me is that when he woke up thursday morning no one necessarily believed that he was for sure going to be involved with the breakaway rival golf tour. I don't think his name had necessarily been associated with it directly in the same way Lee Westwood's had or Ian Poulter's had. Or yeah, he Richard was sort of Dunyan. on that list
0: of like, oh yeah, this guy's probably also involved. We have not heard yeah. from him yet.
1: Yeah, and you know how other guys have been reluctant to tell on themselves, to say that mm-hmm. they're involved. Phil Mickelson said, you know, I've I've asked for a release but I haven't committed yet. Lee Westwood, yeah. I have asked for a release. A lot of people have said like, yeah, um well, Sergio went out and said, <laughs> I'm out of here, y'all, <laughs> and I'm doing it on the 10th hole at a PGA Tour event in which a PGA Tour rules official is putting me in a bad situation. It's crybaby stuff and it's 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 so reactive. And the hilarity of it all is that he was right. It, none, <laughs> n- none of it needed to happen. Yeah. And it was almost so perfect that the PGA Tour rules official is the one that got it out of him. Because I imagine that PGA Tour officials in Ponte Vedra have been trying to get this information out of him for months. <laughs> and lo and behold, you put a little pressure on the guy's neck when it comes to a ruling and he'll confess everything to you.
0: It was a real twisted scene, Sean, because then those same folks in Ponte had to release a statement that said more or less, (laughs) you know, complete and total exoneration for Sergio uh, in the marsh at number 10. But yeah, I mean, the fact that then he doesn't talk to media is like so lame because I think that these guys, and I'm I'm not even a guy that's like, you know, so rah-rah about that's part of every player's duty is to talk to the media. But in this case, If you're gonna say it, if you're gonna talk trash to a rules official about it, like own up to it. Say what what it is you're doing. Like if you think that there's no issue with you going to play this event, why not talk a little bit about it? I mean, Lee Westwood, even if he was telling on himself a little bit, at least he faced a question about it. Um, At least he kind of like took us along with him on his line of thinking. Uh, Yeah, someone pointed out that the the golfers that were at the Miami grand Prix today had had something in common with uh, the list of golfers rumored to go to the live series, which was kind of interesting. There's probably some common sponsors at play there. Um, But yeah, I would just, I would like, I would, I like it when people are willing to defend whatever decisions they're making. And when Sergio will say it on a hot mic, but won't actually defend it to the general public. I don't love that.
1: Yeah. And as you said, is like sympathy requests uh, just don't get granted by the, the court of public opinion anymore when <laughs> they build up and build up and build up. So uh, in terms of rival golf tours, we had some news about that this week. The Premier Golf League came out with a letter on uh, dated May 5th, released on May 4th. Uh, and for people who don't know, which I think is a lot of people... The premier golf league is different than the Saudi backed live golf investments league, which are both very different than the PGA tour though. They have all, uh, the same things on the mind, which is, can we get as many good golfers to play our events? And, uh, what I think is very important, Dylan, is that we set out for people what the hell the differences are between the premier golf league and live golf invitationals. Uh, you know what, if you know the difference, you can fast forward on your podcast. It might be worthwhile to actually listen because I think the differences are important. But at one point, Dylan, what's most confusing is that the premier golf league was the Saudi backed golf league (laughs) way back in time. These used to be not just synonymous, but the same thing.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, and what emerged was the uh, Saudi Golf League, the SGL, the Live Invitational Golf Series, whatever you now want to call that corner of the Breakaway Golf World, has emerged from you know the original idea uh, with a similar format, similar structure. But yeah, let's let's talk about the distinctions because now the PGL is you know grinding to try to gain some traction with the PGA Tour and with PGA Tour players. Um, and their points of differentiation are one, they do not have the, the backing of the Saudi government where the live, uh, invitational series is essentially funded entirely by, by that, um, public investment fund, which is a, you know, the investment arm of the Saudi government. Um, but it's funny, the PGL does not, they don't really lean on that as like a moral argument. They're more saying that what we are offering is the players get a stake in the action, so that's that's a big thing for them. Um, instead of the players getting, you know, to play for just a ton of money, they get a bunch of the equity going into it. So you know, based on their model, every PGA Tour player would get a couple million dollars just like right off the bat. Everyone, top to bottom, every corn Ferry tour player. Would get 300k right off the bat, um, and then they would, they would franchise out the league. That's a big way that they would, uh, you know, derive equity for this product is basically by saying, hey, you know, X wealthy person, you can own a sports franchise, and in this case, you're going to own a uh, PGL golf team. In the same way that guys own. Formula one teams. Um, And, and you know, there are a lot of opportunities that arise out of that is the theory people have uh, it's never been a better, more lucrative time to be a sports franchise owner. So I think the theory is that that would carry over to golf also where there's a piece of this pie. That's missing. I think it would. Um, Don't you? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that vision makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, I think we may have Andy Gardner, the the PGL uh CEO on here at some point to talk through all of it but Sean they're they're facing a real uphill battle now because they are no longer first to the market with this revolutionary idea they sort of want to work i mean i shouldn't say sort of they want to work with the PGA tour now um hmm. but the PGA tour is not necessarily incentivized to work with them and the PGA tour is not communicating with them so they're yeah They're kind of trying to perform some sort of takeover of the PGA Tour from within, which is a tricky place to come if you're saying, look, we're friends with the PGA Tour.
1: The interesting thing about what happened this week is that World Golf Group Limited, this is the PGL's overarching brand, Mm -hmm. they sent a letter that was Live Golf-esque, Greg Norman-esque in some ways. This letter was addressed to all PGA Tour voting members. It had bolded text. It had ultimatums. It had ultimately just promises of massive amounts of money. It had text that was uh, Rory McIlroy's quotes in blue ink. It ended in an ominous way of act now or spend a lifetime wondering what if. It was very much like letters that Greg Norman has sent to tour players. And... To me, that's a that's a pretty bad step. I don't think you want to, um, I don't think you want to be as like oppositional uh, and again also so based off ultimatums and using the word bullshit. You know, <laughs> I think you have to approach players in a maybe a little more even keeled way. And this did not strike me as even keeled. I think invoking Rory McIlroy's name and words don't necessarily help you for trying to appeal to the PGA Tours government. Now, it's a, a thing that I didn't understand for a long time. A lot of people don't understand. There are 16 members of a PGA Tour advisory council. It's a cross-section of the FedEx Cup standings from a year ago. You have people like John Rahm on it and Brooks Kepka, and you have people like Peter Malnati on the bottom end of it. You have four players that are on the PGA Tour's board that have zero PGA tour execs on it, but they have a handful of CEOs from across the business world. And you have four tour players right now, and you're going to have a fifth next year when Patrick Cantlay joins, but that's the people that make this decision. And so kind of throwing Rory under the bus, I think unintentionally and just kind of this is going trying to go through the back door of getting a lot of PGA Tour players to call out this board to call out Kevin Kisner. You're not doing a good enough job, Charlie Hoffman. You've gone about this all wrong, James Hahn. You're the last one I haven't mentioned. Why aren't you approaching this in the same way we've wanted Rory to do this? It, it doesn't feel like the most appropriate, like conservative step that I think this brand has been known for making in the last maybe two years compared to Live Golf, yeah. which is a lot more hasty in their in their doings. Um, it felt weird, and so I, I think I think we could see more things like this in the in the next few months from the PGL. They're really just trying to get a bunch of you know twenty five percent of the voting membership to come come out and say, hey, we need a real look at this thing. They want to be taken seriously. I think the fact that Live Golf is first to the market could be an asset for them or the exact opposite of an asset. It could really detract from what they're trying to do because if Live Golf gets 40 or 30 solid players to join their tour to think about playing exclusively there in 2023, that's 30 or 40 players that the PGL might not be able to convince quite as easily. And they're in, they're in the business of trying to get as many people just interested. It's not happening right now. So this yeah. little like arms race, this like three-way tug of war, Jay Monahan isn't interested in it. If the tour players aren't interested in it, this, that, I think the PGL would shut up real quick, possibly.
0: I think they face a couple big challenges. One is just apathy. Like people are just tired of it. They're sick of it. They've been in, through this process, this decision-making tree of like,
1: well, and they haven't know, been allowed to make mistakes. For, Think about that.
0: No. Live Golf
1: has yeah. made mistakes, right? Phil Mickelson has made mistakes. I think Lee Westwood's made some mistakes on Twitter this year in the way he talks about this. And there will certainly be mistakes in how Live Golf you know, sends out its events this year. They're not really having a tour. They're having eight different separate invitationals. There's been mm-hmm. mistakes made. And those mistakes really kind of weigh on people's attention span. They weigh on how people want to be interested in this. The top 10 players in the world are not interested in any of this stuff. That's a huge mistake that I think Live Golf made or a stumble that was made. That hurts the PGL's options too. I'll let you get back to what you were saying, but like the <laughs> PGL, they, they've run out of time to make yeah.
0: mistakes. Well, because, yeah, I mean, you're right. The attention economy has been dominated by now live um and i guess because the pgl's product is still more an idea than it is an actual black and white decision like crossing of the rubicon that live is presenting so the pga tour would really have to say yeah we're gonna bring you guys in and adopt your idea and essentially allow you to take ownership over a large portion of the pga tour's biggest events like they're there are a lot of reasons that they wouldn't want to be involved. There are a lot of reasons that they could steal certain parts of this that they like the idea of. Um, and so I think that like, yeah, fatigue is just a big time factor. And then also leverage is just a big time factor. And they, they just don't have, they're hoping to have Rory as kind of their spokesman, but like you outlined, the soft touch has not necessarily been there, not from live, but also not from the PGL. And, I think that was one of the things that the PGL had going for it. They were, It was like they were patient, they were patient, they were biding their time, and then it was like they just got aggressive. They kind of lashed out. If I were them, I would be trying to incept this idea into Rory and Jay Monaghan's head, make it seem like it was their idea to work with them. And I think they just have gotten impatient about not being able to meet with Jay Monaghan. Uh, and instead of waiting it out a little bit longer, they, they went live with this letter which you know while maybe factually intriguing in tone was was not quite it and to be fair like (laughs) they do
1: not have an easy path here (laughs) like live golf has made it tough for them jay monahan's made it tougher the guy won't go to the table and and talk to them yeah right their biggest gripe is that their proposal was assessed by a company called allen and co you know, mm-hmm. an investment bank without, without their say, you know, like if someone was going to assess the value of the drop zone without sitting down at the table with you and me, that would feel pretty wrong. And so like, it's not like they've had an easy path at this, but I'm going to write about this week. Uh, if I ever get the courage enough to do so Their their aggressive tone here is exactly what Liv has done. It's shouting money, money, money from the rooftops in bold text. And that's what they're shouting first. And it's only money. Like there is more involved here than just money. When the top 10 players in the world, Colin Morikawa, Rory McElroy, John Rahm are saying, you know what? It's not all about money. How do you expect them to get to the table without saying money, money, money the whole time? Like that's all that they are saying. And I know it's much bigger than that. So maybe that's how they pivot they pivot away from, from screaming about the money and say, the money's still there. We can get you guys interested by being better in other different ways. I don't have those ways in front of me. I'm sure that they're baked into the, the format that they believe will change golf forever, but maybe be a little more obvious with those things. Then the money is an incentive that's added on to it all. But right now, like screaming money from the rooftops, I don't think that's got anybody that excited. Maybe Sergio Garcia yeah. and that's it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's the sort of thing that in theory still makes a lot of sense to me. Like as an idea, I think the franchise thing makes a lot of sense. I think elevating a smaller number of events makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, the team concept, like a lot of it really works for me. It's really just a question of implementation. And I think when pros really start jumping to the live tour, I, I I do wonder if the PGA Tour is going to sort of look in the mirror and say, you know, I wish that we had done more to address this direct threat. You know, instead of just eventually, you know, doing what we could, but then eventually saying, look, go or don't go, like, we're good. I wonder if there's going to be that moment.
1: I think that's what they said. I think, they, I think Jay Monahan said, go or don't go. We're moving on without you.
0: They've they've absolutely said that now. I'm I'm just wondering if they are going to regret saying that instead of, you know, thinking a little bit more outside the box, doing a little bit more to kind of steal some of Liv's thunder.
1: Yeah. And I guess that the way that they could do that would be by going to the table with the PGL. Because right now the PGA Tour is having backroom conversations about how do we change the fall series? How do we take this? incredible schedule that runs from the beginning of September all the way essentially through August. This this year-long schedule, how do we take that in these forty two events and make sure that a quarter of it, you know, doesn't get bastardized by some other, you know, incoming tour by how do we make sure that our top ten percent are as interested as our bottom 10% in every single tournament all year round? That's where the pressure is. And the PGA Tour is hosting discussions about it right now. They're thinking that the fix is to kind of have a, you know, continue the tour events as they are. But those FedEx Cup points, they don't matter. The real FedEx Cup starts in January. And elsewhere, the best players in the world, the the, the top 50 performers, you get to play for these Buku Bucks on some international series. And we'll try to continue the, you know, to, Advance the PGA Tour's footprint in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, or something like that. That's what's kind of being discussed right now. And you know what? The fact that it's being discussed seriously for the first time in March, and the first time, the second time in April. Uh, I guess maybe the first time was in February. Like players are not responding well to it. That that's a huge issue for the PGA Tour. It's like they're trying to go to market with their members with this new exciting idea. It's an idea that is like somewhat taken from these rival golf tours and it's coming at least a year too late, maybe two years too late to really compete with these tours. Clearly that's, it feels like they've dragged their feet. So maybe they have.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think they've unquestionably dragged their feet. They have definitely relied on, their existing product. They, they really continue to whether what they're responding to is, I mean, it it definitely doesn't feel like a direct, you know, bit of competition to the rival tours. That's the only thing. So stay tuned, Sean. I'm worried that our listeners have as much fatigue about this as maybe the PGA tour players themselves. But I think one of the big lessons is that it's hard to get a lot of PGA tour pros to agree on much of anything. So that's probably the biggest battle that they face.
1: My last story that we got to discuss this week is also a money story. According to our friend Alan Shipnock's book, which comes out very soon about Phil Mickelson, big homie lefty accrued $40 million in gambling debts over a five year span at the beginning of the 2010 decade, I have nothing more to say about that other than it's incredible and how the hell do you go past $20 million in gambling debt <laughs> and you accrue the 21st million dollars of debt and the 22nd million dollars of debt? How do you move past that? I think the answer is you make $40 million a
0: year and it's just- Double down, Sean. You just double down. double down. It definitely makes you wonder, like, like you would just you would love to see the betting slips. You know, I don't know exactly in what capacity, you know, these losses came. If they were like on the course with high rollers, if they were at the blackjack table, if they were on sports, but you know, if you're just throwing out like five leg parlays on NFL Sundays for a few years, and they're just not hitting, and you just you're like, man, the next one. I don't know. Just you'd think you'd think you you win one at some point, right? Well, I'm sure he did. That's how
1: gambling yeah. addiction works. You win one out of <laughs> one out of twenty of those, essentially, um, and yeah. you're convinced that you're. You know what? Sports gambling aligns with other things that I have heard about Phil Mickelson. The fact that he. He thinks he can be the smartest person in the room. He thinks that he does know better. He he has all this money to spare. He thinks he can hit any other shot. I just started reading the Phil book. I know you did. A lot of those stories go along with Phil thinking he can do things other people cannot do. That's sports gambling, man. Like you have to be so smart to beat the book. You have to be so smart to 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 be fifty one percent return. <laughs> like that is that is what Phil probably tried to do. Um I'm not going to go any further in terms of like guessing how he how he played this all out, but I just know that if I would be reaching 20 million dollars in gambling debt, I wouldn't reach 40. And that maybe that's just me.
0: Shout out to Ryan Armor. Shot 4 under on Sunday. T25. You got anything else? <laughs> <laughs> all right uh next week is the byron nelson sean i'm gonna go to a bachelor party in austin this week for my friend mitch who actually earned some uh some fame for he, he he baked himself a cake when he broke 100 for the first time posted on twitter people really seem to like it um and then we're gonna podcast on sunday as action wraps up in advance of the pga championship can't wait